Psalm 69. We preached out of the first part of this psalm uh, some weeks ago, and we come uh, this evening to the second part, beginning at verse 19. And I will read those uh, read those verses. But notice, uh, as we often do, as we open up the psalms, it's divided into neat sections. And the first section we'll see in verses 19 to 21 are the reproaches uh, that uh, David uh, is responding to in, uh, in, in himself. And then there is also a retribution, prayers for retribution, curses on enemies in verses 22 to 26. And then finally, the third R is the rejoicing uh, in verses 29, uh, 29 to 36, the retribution verses 22 to 28. Let us, um, let us attend to God's word and, and pray his, his help. Psalm 69. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and, my, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the Word of God. Please again pray with me. Father, we pray tonight for wisdom. Uh, We pray that you would settle our hearts with your character as you have revealed yourself a God of mercy and kindness to your people and yet a God of justice. And so we pray that you would school our hearts today, how to respond to the evil in our world, how to respond to the evil of people even who align themselves with the cause of Christ and yet, and yet persecute others. We, we pray 
uh, that you would grant us a reasonable, godly, stable place to stand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there was a spirited uh, debate uh, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church some years ago about whether or not we should even have uh, this new Psalter hymnal that was in the process of being created. Uh, There were concerns from several people Uh, this new hymnal would have not only some of the great classic hymns of the faith, which we all love, but it would also contain some of the best contemporary hymns as well. In addition to that, each of the 150 psalms thank the Lord framed in a singable tune. Well, uh, as the articles in the New Horizons would fly around and as people would write letters to each other, these are some of the words that were spoken to describe the publication of that hymnal. Revolutionary! Radical! People People were writing sharp emails to each other. Letters were being written in the, uh, published in the New Horizons. It was a rather tense time. Well, the consensus view... Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, th- what was causing people to be so concerned was, uh, what was, was not that there were new hymns such as Before the Throne of God Above published in that hymnal. And praise God for that. That's one of my favorites. The problem that some people had really focused on the fact that all of the 150 psalms were included. People were upset because each of the psalms, including each of the imprecatory psalms, were included in the new new Psalter hymnal. Does that strike you as odd? Well, it has been the consensus view since the work on the first Trinity hymnal was taking place. The consensus view is that not all psalms are suitable for Christian worship. And God nowhere commands that all of the psalms be sung. What was the problem that people expressed pretty simply in terms like this? God calls us to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not to curse them. We are persecuted. We are worn down by other people, but our response is to be not to curse, but to bless. Do not pray against them, these articles would say, um, even those who bring pain into our lives. On the other side, it was argued that David himself prayed for God's righteous wrath upon, among, among his, upon his enemies, and Jesus does too, so, so should we. I would like to be able to, well, we're going to need to spend more than one message on this. I want, tonight, I just want to lay out some basic principles of how do we approach a psalm such as this. How can we make sense of it uh, and and um, and perhaps even answer that question that was 
I dare even say plaguing the OPC as recently as five to eight years ago. Well, I want this evening to, to take just a, take a few minutes to just sketch the, the subject, to summarize the content of each of the main sections of, of this psalm from verses 19 through the end. Um, first of all, the, the reproaches, and certainly David himself suffered at the hands of Saul. He would have suffered at the hands of the Philistines. There was a, a man named Shammai who was particularly uh, aggravating to him. And, so, and so, so David had occasion to respond to the suffering that he himself was undergoing. But it's greater than David here. These are these are, are, are these references here uh, in in the um, in the reproaches uh, reply to reply, apply to Jesus' passion. Uh, many places in the New Testament pick up on these verses and use them to describe the fact that Jesus was scorned. He was shamed at Calvary. Uh, even at Gethsemane, we see him asking for support from his disciples. He's looking for pity, uh, verse 20, but there was none. Watch for with me even one hour, but they didn't do it. He, he, was, he was suffering and he was being given uh, gall and vinegar by his enemies as he cried out for thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink, verse 31. So it clearly applies most specifically and powerfully and directly to Jesus himself. And yet we might look at this and we might also say as believers, we too uh, endure some kind of disgrace and some kinds of reproaches on behalf of Christ. We absorb mild persecution ourselves as, uh, as we take a stand for Christ in this day and age. So, so David and Jesus most of all, but we ourselves in a reflective way, have experience of these reproaches. But there is a surprising turn in verse 22 to a strong retribution where he prays, uh, he prays curses on his enemies. And we could say that that whole section, verses 22 to 28, are summarized in verse 24. Uh, um, Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. And that is expressed in particulars in those verses. May their table, which is supposed to be a place of rest and sustenance, become a trap for them, become a place, a place of fear. Uh, those, would, those who can see, Lord, we pray that you would grant them blindness. We pray that you would give homelessness to some, empty tents fulfilled by Judas, we see in Acts chapter 1. So all of these and other uh, prayers of, of cursing upon our enemies uh, that, that David, David is, is praying here. And verse 26 explains why. And that is that, that um, um, they persecute him whom God has wounded. They are enjoying the pain of those whom God has wounded. They are kicking people who are already down. And that was so, uh, so egregious. And so in verses 27 and, 20 and 28, May they have no mercy from you for each one of their offenses. Do not, be, do not relent in giving your justice to them. Do not rescue them from their distress. And even blot them out. And make them dead. 
It's surprising, the power and the strength. We might even say the animosity of these prayers, these prayers for cursing. And then finally, in, in, the, in the last section, the rejoicing, uh, verses 29 to 36, there is, there is um, a response of thanksgiving and worship and delight for God hears us, His eyes on the sparrow, we might say, and He cares for us. He doesn't despise His own, His people who are prisoners. But there is also a sense of greater blessings than what we receive in this life are in view as well. Let heaven and earth praise Him. God will save Zion. He will build up the cities of Judah. And this has an eye not only to the restoration of the land, but it has an eye. It has an eye to uh, to God's uh, to God's um, bringing about the new heavens and the new earth and bringing down uh, the new city of Jerusalem. So, in all of these things, we must ask, especially, how do we understand these these middle verses that are so difficult, the imprecatory verses of this psalm? This evening, I just want to mention two ways that people have sort of handled this. Neither one of them is satisfactory, uh, I think you will see, but but one is is that there are some people who will draw a very sharp line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, and the God who is characterized by, by vengeance in the Old Testament is replaced by the God of love and forgiveness in the two. So it's almost as if there are two gods and there certainly are two messages. Well, that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't fly at all. Um, you re- might remember uh, in Matthew chapter 25 these words of Jesus, uh, Depart from me, you cursed uh, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus, it is famously said, speaks more of hell than any other writer in the New Testament. And then you have Paul, the Apostle of Grace. Listen to the way that Paul deals with this in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at, at verse 6. Paul says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer for the punish, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Paul speaks in these verses of the certainty of the vengeance of God that will be rained upon those who do not believe. But he also says it is in the future. Well, if if not, then uh, two different messages from each of the different testaments. Some look at these verses and say, well, really... They're speaking, he's speaking in a figurative sense, and there it's a spiritualized application to these imprecations, these prayers. And the enemies that, that he is praying against aren't really people, they're, they're spiritual attacks. And so some will talk about the severity of the temptations that, that uh, come at us in our flesh, or they may speak of the flaming darts of the demonic oppression that would bring us down. But listen, Judas is is mentioned in these verses by reference. He is foretold and his demise is promised. It is not the demise of the devil that is promised. It is a man's demise, even though he was a tool 
of the devil. So we cannot just make these figurative uh, either. What I want to do instead is take just a few moments now and look at these at this section, this central section, from the perspective of David and then from the perspective of Jesus and then how we can handle this uh, ourselves. Well, very simply, um, David foreshadows in his role as king in the theocracy, David foreshadows the wrath of the Lamb. The New Testament will put it this way uh, about, about the king uh, who is coming, uh, the Lamb who is coming and the wrath of the Lamb. It, it, it says that kings and generals will cry out to rocks and mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of the Lamb who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Get that, get that. Kings and generals are are saying, protect us from the fiery wrath of the Lamb, who is Jesus Himself. And so it was that David is acting out against his enemies a, a picture, a foretelling of that wrath. So in the theocracy, kings, and especially David, were shadows of future events. Shadows of events where Jesus Himself, the King, was going to come and, and bring, about his, uh, bring about retribution. They were a shadow of future events. As Hebrews 10 puts it, the shadow of good things to come. All of the Old Testament figures and, and, uh, and types and persons are shadows of the good things that are to come. So David's prayers here are against, uh, against the wicked foreshadow God's final Judgment. But listen carefully. Psalm 69 is not about David's personal offense. It is not David's personal revenge against his attackers. And I want you to remember his story. It was a story about that, that occurred uh, during the time of Absalom's attempted coup in Jerusalem. And David and his faithful were fleeing from Jerusalem. David had, uh, had, had t- taken the hearts of God's people. He was in possession of their hearts. He was in the, he was in the, uh, in the palace there. And David was, was running out of town. And as he is making his way, there is a man who is following him, walking along a ridge. His name was Shammai. And he's walking up on top of the ridge and he's throwing clods of dirt and he's cursing and he's just, he's just saying, David, you're a dog. You're not worth anything. This is what you get for, for taking down the house of Saul. And he was, he was vile. And do you remember what David said? He said something like this. Don't touch him. It might be that God has told him to say these things. He walked on in quiet and in patience, not reacting to the cursing that he was receiving. The story doesn't end there. Do you remember when he is on his deathbed and he is giving his instructions, final instructions to Solomon? He mentioned Shammai. He doesn't say what to do to him. He just says to Solomon, you know what to do to him. <laughs> Bring him down. End his life. Now what's significant about that? 
David was not reacting to Shammai in the first place out of his own sense of having been violated. His own sense of having been even unjustly persecuted. But he did demand God's justice in God's kingdom. And that justice would be meted out by his son Solomon, not by his own hand. What do we take from this? We are not to be engaged in the payback for, for, uh, re- out of our own personal spite. Uh, it is not an example. David's treatment here, uh, of, uh, in, as it's in, contained in this psalm, is not an example of how we are to deal with neighbors who don't know Jesus, <laughs> to pray curses on them when they do something we don't like. <laughs> It is instead to respond uh, to suffering and persecution with patience. Well, what about Jesus himself? We could say that no one has a more right to pray these words than Jesus. He himself experienced the crowd's treasonous cruelty uh, in, the, in, the, in his passion. But you remember, of course, you do remember, of course, what he said to the soldiers and to the crowd as he was being crucified. He said, Father... Father, forgive them, for they don't even they don't even realize what they're doing. Be patient with them. May the gospel be preached to them so that they hear and can repent and believe. And many of them, uh, many of them, uh, did just that. Uh, remember, uh, remember that uh, that uh, Jesus um, absorbed. Listen to the way that Isaiah 53 describes Jesus absorbing his suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before that is um, before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. But interesting. Uh, Paul will take these verses, verses 22-23 uh, out, um, out of Psalm 69, and he will apply them to the Jews who have rejected Jesus. He will apply these imprecatory prayers against the Jews in Romans 11. We looked at that some months ago. Where Paul is essentially saying um, to using this psalm, and he is saying, Father, don't forgive them, for they know just what they're doing. You see, the light had come into the world. Jesus himself was the light. Uh, He had come into the world and had given enough light for everyone to see. But they had rejected that light. They had rejected Christ. God had hardened them in their unbelief. And so Paul is saying there in Romans 11, echoing these words from Psalm 69, may they be hardened in their unbelief. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the bridegroom will shut the door behind the guests that are safely inside. But then he also shuts out those who who pretend to know the groom and don't. Matthew 25, verses 10 and 11. We read these words, many will come into the, into the kingdom from the east and the west. They will recline with Abraham um, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And these words of imprecation are prayed against those rebels against Christ and against his words. But they are not spoken until the end of the ages. They are not realized until the end 
of the age. Well, what about for you and me? I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. I want you to read carefully and slowly a couple of verses from there that describes the New Testament ethic, um, how we are to respond to those who even despitefully use us. I want to mention four points here under, under this last section of, of how, how we can understand and how we can walk out in this, uh, this imp, uh, prayer of, of imprecation. How do, we, how do we understand it? The first thing we do is to build our lives upon these pillars from the words of Jesus and then from the words of Paul. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, um, I say to you, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Jesus is saying, how do we respond to our enemies? We bless them. We pray for them, not against them. We look for ways that we can be a blessing to them. Paul puts it this way in, in chapter Romans 12, 14, Bless those who persecute, persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I'm going to give you an example from church history. A man named uh, William Tyndale was martyred in the early part of the 16th century. Um, he was devoted to the Word of God. He was devoted to, to, um, to, to preaching, to teaching, to translating uh, God's Word, to getting it into the hands of God's people. And, um, and, and he was martyred for his, for his uh, commitment to serve the Lord in this way. But I want you to listen to the prayer of William Tyndale, uh, even as he was being martyred. He, he prays for those who are persecuting him and not against them. He says, oh God, listen, he's in the, he's in the process of, of being killed. And this is a, these are his last words. Oh God, open the king of England's eyes. Let him see what he's doing. Father, forgive him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Open his eyes. And so the first thing then is to recognize that our duty, our call, is to love our enemies. That is difficult. We could even say that it's far easier to not only pray, but to act out the imprecations of this psalm against them than it is to pray for them and bless them. It's easier to do that. Is it the right thing to do? The words of Jesus would tell us otherwise. We love our, we love our enemies, but the second thing, um, we, we pray... Um, and, and these words, these prayers of, of imprecations are, are, are in a way an application of the Lord's Prayer, which is, let your kingdom come and your will be done. We're praying for God's kingdom to come. And, and yet it is a, it is a two-edged sword. Um, we, we pray, Maranatha, uh, Lord, come quickly. And we are praying for ourselves and for other believers. We're praying for our rescue. We are pr- we are praying for the, the otherworldly fulfillment of Psalm 69, that, that the whole world would praise God and the, and the new heavens and the new earth would be populated by God's people and there would be peace and joy and life and righteousness and light and honor. That's what we're praying for, for God's people to be rescued. 
but it's, as I said, a two-edged sword. And we're also praying for justice for unbelievers. We are praying for the downfall of Satan's kingdom. As the Catechism said, for God to judge and to stand against all his and our enemies. We are praying for perfect justice. And yet, for now, the wheat and the tares live together. It's a time of patience. Don't bring the harvest right away, Jesus said. Wait. Let the tares live out their lives. Let the wheat live out their lives. It is the time for patience and it is the time for mercy. So we live in a time of tension. And it is a tension where we both pray for evildoers, but work against their evil. That's point number three. We can pray for evildoers, but at the same time work against their evil. It is appropriate for us to hate vicious tyrants. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many others in the Confessing Church felt it was even appropriate to fight against, literally, um, the, the tyranny of Hitler. That is a question that you would need to decide for yourself. But this is, how, this is an application that I make of it in hating vicious tyrants. A husband who, who abuses his family. A husband who is harsh and cruel to his wife and to his children. I work against that evil and I pray for his restoration. This is a very personal and very powerful thing. It's, it's emotionally, there is emotional revulsion in this kind of activity. Uh, a missionary on the field somehow believes that it is okay. A married missionary on the field somehow believes it is okay to have an adulterous relationship with someone, with one of the people there in Africa. That that's somehow okay. And it's even okay for him to have two wives. It's okay for him to destroy his family because he wants this other woman. It is appropriate for us to pray against this person and to do what we can to stop his evil, but we also pray for his restoration. We pray for God to restrain evil and its effects. But it is not ours to pray him to hell. God will work that out in God's time. Well, let's go back to our opening question. (laughs) Do we sing Psalm 69? I suppose you might, but interestingly enough, in our version of the Trinity hymnal, uh, Psalm 69 is included, all except these verses of imprecation from verses 19, or from, from verses 21 to 28. They're excluded. Could we sing it? Could we sing these verses? I think we could. I'm not sure it's wise. 
unless you preface them with a message, something like what we've just given tonight, the overview of it. This is not about your own personal feelings and attacks on your enemies. This is about, isn't even about Jesus' attitude towards unbelievers now. It's not about that. It's a reflection of, of David's anger at his enemies that was a foreshadowing of Christ on the last day treating his enemies this way, those who have, have uh, disregarded him. You can, you can put all that out there and, and then sing the song if you share those principles first. As I was reflecting on these things, the words of a different hymn came to mind. Listen to these words. It's in our hymn. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See, on the portals, he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to glorify Christ this day. We want to glorify Him for His mercy to sinners. We also want to shudder at the um, judgment that is to come as we consider that this psalm does reflect uh, Jesus at His return. And so we pray that we would be motivated to be people who fight against evil and who pray for sinners. That this gospel that we love to tell, this story that we love to tell, would be on our lips. We pray these things in His name. Amen.